1: The Keystone 4. "'So, how much did you get paid?' Stan asked, later that evening when we got together in a saloon to discuss what we'd been up to. "'We got lunch,' I said. "'Just lunch?' It was a good lunch. "'No money at all, though. That seems odd.' "'Ah, yes, well, you see, the fact is... "'We were fired.' "'Fired?' Ed said, and Wren stared down at her drink. "'I'm afraid so.' "'Charlie fired you?' Stan said, boggling with disbelief. "'Why?' "'Well, you know, he's always felt threatened by me, "'and I think he was worried that I was just too funny.' (laughs) "'No, really, why?' "'I glanced at Wren, who was still not looking at any of us. "'Um, we spoiled a shot, you see. "'We were in one place, weren't we, and we were supposed to be in another, "'and the way the flickers work is that was a problem, so we were fired.' "'That arrogant son of a bitch,' Ed said angrily. "'I have a good mind to go down there and tell him what I think of him firing my wife.' "'Please don't,' Wren blurted out. "'It was embarrassing enough. "'Let's just forget about it, shall we? "'Well, I... please, Ed.' "'Ed's bad-tempered bluster dissipated slowly, "'and Stan changed the subject. "'Well,' he said, "'I've had no joy getting us a booking, I'm afraid, "'but I'm asked around about the Bostock brothers "'who we're meeting tomorrow, thanks to Wren, "'and the general consensus is that they're very good news. "'They're very well thought of by bookers and other acts alike, "'and if we could only persuade them to take over our affairs, "'it could be a very good opportunity for us.' Our spirits were given a lift by this, and we agreed to have an early night, so as to appear as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as possible the next morning. As it happened, we could not afford to stay for another drink anyway. As I made to follow Stan and Ed outside, Wren grabbed my arm. Arthur! Wren, listen, what happened? I'm sorry, I got carried away. I know, we both did, didn't we? So? Um... Wren looked sheepish, guilty even. I have something for you, she said not meeting my eyes. She took my hand and placed an envelope on it. What's this? I should have given it to you before. I'm sorry about that. I found it when we went to Considine's office last week. It was in a pile on a desk there, and your name caught my eye, so I picked it up. Why didn't you give it to me? I don't know. You were talking to Considine, and and then you were so very cross about Charlie Chaplin being in town, I just couldn't get near you. After that, it must have slipped my mind. I see. Well, that's... "'Wren was flushed and gave a little gulp. "'And then you said her name, didn't you, "'and I realised how selfish I was being. "'I'm sorry.' "'She put her hand to her mouth then and rushed out. "'Such strange behaviour. "'I couldn't fathom it. "'I looked at the envelope then. "'It looked like it had been through quite a journey, "'battered from pillar to post. "'I could make out my name on the front in a curly hand "'and the address care of Considines in Chicago. "'I flipped it over and found the sender's name "'written across the back flap, "'and my heart skipped a beat.' T. Beckett, Great Yarmouth, England. I ripped it open with trembling fingers. Dearest, Tilly began, and I had to pause after that single word to compose myself. I will be brief, for there is no telling whether this missive will ever reach you. I have tried everything I can think of to make contact with you, but so far it seems to no avail as you have not replied. How foolish we were not to make better arrangements, but then we expected to be reunited quickly, didn't we? Oh well, that is so much spilt milk, isn't it? Wallace and I reached Great Yarmouth to find my father in hospital and out of danger. He had suffered burns in the pier fire, but was recovering well. He was no longer under suspicion of causing the conflagration, even though he had been stockpiling some explosives underneath the boardwalk, the silly man, which naturally hadn't helped matters.' The arson was the work of suffragettes, who'd been denied use of a meeting hall there. Incredibly, they were quite content to allow my father to take the blame and the consequences, until they belatedly realised that doing so provided no benefit whatsoever to their cause, and so they finally came forward to claim the credit. I still sympathise with the struggle, naturally, but the people are hard to like after causing us so much trouble. Rest assured, your son is well and growing ever so fast. Write to me if you get this, at 24 Palmer Road, Great Yarmouth, Norfolk. All my love always, Tilly. I stared at the page for a long time, reading it over and over. No mention of any plan to return to the States, at which I was naturally relieved on account of the deadly peril and so on, but also, I have to say, a little disappointed. There was a brisk tone to the letter that suggested she'd written these details many times, and I wondered how many of her letters had gone astray, or had perhaps arrived at theatres in the days after I'd left them it was quite a fluke that this one had got through when i thought about it and she'd clearly received none of mine at the time of writing it but now i had an address and i should have to give some thought to establishing a better line of communication things were looking up 10:30 sharp early in the day for vaudeville business found the four comiques arrayed in an optimistic row, all freshly shaven, the three men anyway, pink-faced, clean-shirted, and at our most presentable, sitting in front of the rather grand darkwood desk of the agent, Claude Bostock. He was a genial enough chap, in his thirties, with a loud checked jacket that gave him a decidedly vaudevillian aspect. His brother, Gordon, was dressed more soberly, and stood by the window behind. They seemed remarkably similar in every other way, and it was hard to gauge which of them was the senior. "'I couldn't believe it when Mrs Hurley told me that you had no representation. "'Could I, Gordon?' Claude said. "'No, he couldn't believe it,' Gordon added, inspecting his fingernails in the sunlight. "'Ed looked oddly vindicated at this, which was irritating. "'It was not as if he'd been pushing us to get an agent, "'but suddenly it was Stan's fault and mine that we hadn't yet had one. "'Well, you see,' I said, "'we were booked directly into Sullivan and Considine theatres until very recently.' "'Ah, yes, poor Considine,' Claude said sadly. "'A real pity, isn't it, Gordon?' It is, Gordon agreed. He was a very fair man to deal with. Not like... Now then, Claude put in, we will have to deal with his rivals more than ever before, since they are expanding, so let's not complain. Quite, Gordon said, pursing his lips. And sometimes a personal connection such as yours with Mr Considine makes it difficult to push oneself forward as much as one might. Ed nodded. Exactly, he said, as though he'd been trying to make that very point for weeks. Now then, we deal with a large number of circuits of all sizes, and I feel that an act such as yours should be able to work pretty much every week. Stan beamed. That's nice to hear, he said. Oh, that's really the minimum, Claude said. Isn't it, Gordon? We should be looking for bigger and bigger time for you, is what Claude means. As long as you're prepared to put in the work. Whatever it takes, Stan said firmly. Well, good. That is good news. Claude beamed at all of us, and we, I have to admit, beamed at one another. It seemed that things were looking up. If the group could acquire these two gentlemen as our agents, then we would be spared the miserable business of traipsing around trying to get ourselves booked. Of course, we'd be paying them a cut, but hopefully that would be a piece of a significantly larger pie. Now tell me, Claude went on, you were all in the Fred Carno company, am I right? Yes, sir, Stan said, first in England and then here in America on the Sullivan and Considine time. Performing a night in an English music hall. correct? Uh, That's right, and also the Wow Wows and a night in the club. Indeed. And in all of these productions, you, Stan, were understudy to Charlie Chaplin, if I'm not mistaken. No, sir, you're not, Stan said with a little frown. For my part, I felt the cold chill of something unpleasant approaching, but I couldn't think yet what it was to be. So it would be fair to say that you are well-versed in Chaplin's style and techniques. Stan didn't say anything to this. I muttered on his behalf. Stan is even better than Chaplin. And the rest of you... Claude went on, are equally well versed in supporting a chaplain performance. "'Well,' Ed bristled, "'it was not like we were supporting him. "'We were all part of a team.' "'I see, I see,' Claude mused. "'I had a sudden suspicion that he was merely making a show "'of considering something he and his brother had already decided upon.' "'The two of them glanced at one another, and Gordon gave a little nod. "'All right,' Claude said. "'Here's what we think.' The Nutty Burglars is a very funny act, no doubt about it. Thank you, Mr Bostock, Stan said. We certainly are confident that we should be able to do something for you. Excellent. We would, however, like to propose a change or two. We think, Gordon said, taking over now, that you have the perfect opportunity. The time is right to exploit the quite extraordinary popularity of your former colleague. Chaplin. I said through gritted teeth. Precisely. And who better to do that than those who know him best of all? Too well, I muttered. What do you have in mind, exactly? Stan asked. Just the merest tweak, really, Gordon said, examining his nails. Yes, Claude said. The scenario remains untouched. The only change, really, is that Stan's character becomes Charlie Chaplin. A simple impersonation for one of your skills and experience, Gordon added. Then, correspondingly, Arthur here will become Chester Conklin, Charlie's usual sidekick in the films, which is really only adding a walrus moustache, Gordon put in, leaning forwards with his hands on Claude's desk as the two brothers double-teamed us. And the talented Mrs Hurley will no doubt make a marvellous Mabel Normand. There, what do you think? Claude and Gordon smiled at us, as though they had just proposed the most brilliant suggestion. Stan was shaken, I could see that. I was struggling for breath, such was the weight of the depression pressing down on me all of a sudden. Wren seemed intrigued, but Ed, naturally enough, was angry enough for all four of us. "'What about me?' he pouted. "'You've forgotten me.' "'Ah, well, you are the easiest of all. You can remain a generic cop.' "'A generic cop? Is that what you think I'm playing?' "'Or,' Claude said, "'how about this? "'A keystone cop.' "'Brilliant,' Gordon said, snapping his fingers. "'That really is the cherry on the cake.' I, uh, Stan said, we, um, that is to say, and instead of the four comiques, you will be billed as, how's this? Claude mined with his hands an improbably impressive marquee billing in the air as he offered up his suggestion. The Keystone Four. The Keystone Four, I snarled then, and Stan put his hand on my arm. I wonder, uh, my friend said, I wonder if we might have a minute or two in private to discuss this. Of course, of course. "'Claude cried, affability incarnate. "'Gordon and I will step outside for a cigarillo. "'Gordon!' "'The two brothers promptly left us alone. "'Stan turned to the three of us, eyebrows raised. "'So,' he said, "'what do we think of that?' "'No,' Ed said firmly, "'absolutely not. "'Generic cop? "'Who do they think they're talking to?' "'I think it would be fun to play Mabel Normand, "'make a change from playing Tilly Beckett anyway,' "'Wren said with an arch glance in my direction.' Charlie's not even at Keystone anymore. It doesn't make any sense. I suppose he is still associated with the name. Even so, he did make 30-odd films there last year, and they are still showing everywhere. Arthur, what about you? I sighed. The thought of turning our whole working life into a -a four-times-a-day glorification of the genius of Charles Spencer Chaplin made my gorge rise. But what else did we have in the offing? Nothing at all. I looked at Stan, and thought I saw that he was leaning towards the idea, although not liking it much more than I did. And Wren sounded interested too, so if I were to align myself with the grumpy Edgar Hurley, the comiques would be split two and two, and there would be impasse. So I said, "'Well, you know, all it would really involve for me is slapping on a moustache. "'No one knows what Chester Conklin sounds like, do they? "'So I shouldn't think it would take much getting away with for my part. "'It's you, Stan.' You will have to carry the bulk of the burden if we decide to do this. So I guess if you are up for it, then I am too. Gah! Hurley expostulated, throwing his hands in the air. Arthur's right, Wren said. It should be your choice, Stan. What do you think? Stan looked at each of us in turn, a serious expression clouding his thin features. Then he broke into a big Stan grin and held out his hand, palm down. The keystone for it is, then. Ren and I put our hands on top of his and waited, daring Edgar not to join in. Finally, he gave up and slapped his hand angrily on top of the pile. The Keystone Four! <laughs> Chapter 26. Waffles and Co. The Bostock brothers slipped us some cash to cover a few days of rehearsal, and managed to get us a booking for the very next week, all of which boded well for our new business partnership. They were also happy for me to use them as a kind of post-restant service, so I dashed off a letter to Tilly in Great Yarmouth, letting her know that all was well. I related the fall of poor old Considine and our new attachment to the Bostocks. Naturally, I told her how much I was missing her and Wallace. After that, though, I found I was skipping over much of what had been on my mind since I'd last seen her. I didn't mention bumping into Charlie in Chicago or his Big New Deal for fear of fueling her anxiety about my supposed fixation. Neither did I mention the day I spent at S&A for obvious reasons. I was feeling pretty foolish about that. And so was Wren, I think. Nor did I tell her that we were becoming a full-time chaplain tribute act, although it did occur to me that it might go a long way towards demonstrating the increased maturity of my attitude to chaplain if I could survive that with a reasonable amount of equanimity. Stan threw himself enthusiastically into honing his impersonation of Charlie and dragged us along to see all the keystone shorts he could find on offer. Wren was eagerly watching Mabel Normand for tics and mannerisms, while I caught the odd glimpse of Chester Conklin in action and felt pretty certain that I wouldn't really need to do much to pull that turn off. He was a pop-eyed performer with a trademark moustache covering most of the bottom half of his face, so I'd really only need to invest in a second-hand hairpiece and a pot of theatrical glue.' Edgar Hurley did not accompany us on our trips to the cinemas. He reckoned that as Charlie had barely ever featured alongside the Keystone Cops, he would be better occupied watching them, and whatever performance bits he was picking up, he was keeping to himself. Stan and I were both somewhat irritated by this, but Ed's part was small enough that we thought we could stand to wait and see what he was going to do, rather than get into a row with him. At the weekend, we made our way by train to Altoona in Pennsylvania, where the newly refurbished nutty burglars were to make their bow at the Orpheum, no less. Ed stared out of the window the whole way, doubtless plotting his character's regeneration, and Wren, too, was remarkably subdued, which I took to be nerves. The Hurleys were effectively incommunicado, then, and Stan was dry-running Charlie's gestures in his head, eyes closed, fingers twitching this way and that, so I was alone with my thoughts.' the Pennsylvania Railroad from Pittsburgh dropped down from the Allegheny Mountains into Altoona via the famous Horseshoe Curve, which arched steeply and spectacularly around a valley running along three sides of a large reservoir. We passed another train going the other way, climbing up the gradient, of which we then got a good view on the other side of the curve. I imagined Wallace looking out at it, pressing his little nose to the window and scribbling with his fat little finger in the patch that he'd steamed up. I picked up a newspaper and forced myself to read a little more about the progress of the war. It was so complex and so appalling and so downright discouraging that I could only stomach a little at a time. That spring, the Allies were on the offensive in Artois and Champagne, and were also attacking somewhere called the Dardanelles, which was the pet scheme of a bright spark called Churchill, The Austro-Hungarians were being driven back from Galicia by the Russians, who were on our side, I think, and there was even some sabre-rattling between the Japanese and the Chinese. It all seemed a long, long way away, until I started reading about something called a Zeppelin this was a massive cigar-shaped airship that could fly from Germany to England and rain bombs down onto the civilian population, and it sounded very much like the flying death we'd heard about from Charlie's aviator acquaintance, Glen Martin. The Zeppelin raid I read about that morning had been an attempt to bomb the port of Hull, but the British weather had blown the silver monsters off course, and the bombs had actually fallen on Kings Lynn, Sheringham and Great Yarmouth. "'Whatever is it?' Stan said from the seat opposite. "'You've gone as white as a sheet.' "'I showed him the paragraph that had so shaken me. "'Great Yarmouth. That's where Tilly is, and Wallace.' "'I thought them safe there, not giving much credence to Tilly's father "'and his crazy conviction that the Kaiser would launch an invasion. "'But this, fiery death falling from the skies onto my girl and our little lad, "'this was a far worse nightmare to deal with.' "'I need to go,' I said, suddenly, struck by a new resolve.' My dear chap, are you sure? I can go and come back, I said, which is to say I can go to England, find Tilly and Wallace, and bring them back here to the States. Stan put his hands on his knees and looked me in the eye. Now listen, he said, you know I love Tilly and little Wallace as much as I love anyone, but this is madness. I have to try, I said. Think first, Stan said how will you get across? Never mind the expense for a moment. All the liners have been laid up for months for fear of mines and submarines, quite apart from the fact that hardly anyone wants to make the trip. The Kaiser has declared all the waters around the British Isles a war zone, hasn't he? Which means the Germans are perfectly prepared to open fire on merchant ships, even passenger ships, for all we know. Yes, but (laughs) there must be something I can do. And then when you get to England, it's a country at war. How will you avoid getting caught up in it?' The British army is made up of volunteers, isn't it? A few women with white feathers don't scare me, and I'll be sure to drink my beer from a tankard with a glass bottom. Huh? So I don't accidentally take the king's shilling, you haven't heard that old one? Yes, but listen, what if you can't get back? And what if the government brings in compulsory service in the meanwhile? They'll never do it, I scoffed. compelled the British working man to defend a government they had no part in electing. It'd be pandemonium. Maybe, maybe, Stan frowned. You don't think I should at least try? I'm being selfish, I admit it, Stan said with a grin, dropping his voice to a low whisper. I was just thinking about being left here to deal with Edgar bloody Hurley all by myself. Of course we must look into it, see what can be done, if anything. The Orpheum Theatre posters already billed us as the Keystone Four, promising that Stan was the nation's premier chaplain impersonator. I was impressed, I must admit, by the push the Bostocks had given us. Grateful, too, as Stan was far too modest to have suggested such a line for himself. And of course, if there was a better chaplain than Stan, who had lived in Charlie's pocket for years, then he'd be quite a thing to see. I thought even Charlie himself would have struggled to match his chaplain, which was a ridiculous thing to think, of course, but Stan had something, an indefinable something, that Charlie never had. It was in his rapport with the audience, his feel for how they were reacting to him, his connection to them. "'Charlie always gave the impression that he would be just as happy "'performing to an empty room, perfecting his art. "'I stood in the wings that Monday afternoon, "'waiting for our first performance as the Keystone Four, "'clutching my tool-bag, which bore the legend Waffles and Co., "'Burglars, Murders Done, "'and twitching my Chester Conklin moustache, "'which I was wishing I'd trimmed a little more. "'Suddenly, in the wings opposite, I saw a familiar figure, "'hopping from one foot to the other in oversized boots,' twirling a bendy cane and twitching his own smaller moustache. A chill went down my spine. It was Stan, of course, and he shot me a big Stan grin, but it was so like Charlie that I was thrown, and almost missed my cue to begin. In fact, at several points during the opening of the sketch, I found myself caught out, just staring at Stan, transported back to performing old carno routines with Chaplin as the drunken swell. He was able to fill the gaps, naturally, as the audience were lapping up every moment, but I caught him frowning at me once or twice, and felt an unusual belligerence rising in myself as though it were Chaplin himself finding fault. I shook my head to clear it, to try and regain my concentration, and the Conklin trademark came loose and flew across the stage, necessitating a quick grovel and grab to cover. Wren came on then, and her Mabel was almost as pitch-perfect as Stan's Charlie, so that the sketch fairly sailed along until Edgar Hurley made his appearance as the cop to interrupt the burglary in progress. Not content with his part at the best of times, Hurley had taken the opportunity to build himself up. And how. The cop who strode onto the stage was a very different fellow to the chump we were used to. For a start, he had a big letter K painted onto his uniform in case anyone should be in any doubt that he was a keystone cop. Now, the most distinctive of the film cops was probably Conklin, already taken, or Fatty Arbuckle, a reach for Hurley, so he'd decided to take on the persona of their leader, Ford Sterling. This he had achieved with the addition of a little goatee beard and a manic expression, with eyes as crossed as Ben Turpin's. Hurley hadn't stopped there, though. Now he wasn't just a generic cop, he was the chief of police, which suited his ego far better, and Ford Sterling was a star, not quite a chaplain or a normand, admittedly, but certainly the equal of a Conklin. So he strutted out to join us, barely managing to conceal a self-satisfied smirk. "'Hold it right there!' he shouted. "'What is going on here?' "'Um,' Stan said. Our generic cop had never been this forceful. "'My Keystone Cops have this whole place surrounded!' Hurley cried, taking centre stage and calling into the wings. "'You men! Some of you go round the back, the rest of you watch the street. "'And fatty, you guard that cat flap. Guard it with your... life!' "'Stan and I were frantically trying to adapt to this different scenario, "'and I could see that Wren was equally perplexed. "'The sketch had always featured a lone policeman "'who was a dumb fall guy for the burglars to outsmart, "'with the help of the arch little maid. "'But now here was the leader of a whole squad of police "'intent on carrying out a full-scale investigation.' "'My name is Sterling, and I am the chief of police. "'Nothing happens in this town without me knowing about it. "'So,' Hurley bellowed at Stan, "'who are you? Explain yourself.' "'The... master of the house?' Stan asked, "'not seeing what Ed was getting at. "'And you, my dear, who are you?' "'The maid, sir,' Wren ventured. "'I see. So you can confirm that this is your master?' "'I can. And you can confirm that this is your maid?' "'Yes?' "'Stan said. "'Aha!' Police Chief Edgar Hurley said, "'beginning to pace up and down, "'his comedy eyebrows pumping up and down furiously. "'Now we are getting somewhere. "'Then perhaps you can tell me "'just exactly what is going on here.' "'Well, the sketch was grinding to a halt "'thanks to Hurley's new characterization. "'After all, whenever Charlie was faced "'with an authority figure in one of his flicks, "'he didn't stand still and answer questions. "'He kicked him up the backside, "'and carefully choreographed mayhem would ensue.' However, as Ed had sprung this on us, we hadn't prepared anything. Stan shot me a look, and then suddenly pirouetted away from Ed Hurley, and delivered a neat kick up his rear end. Then, as he spun past me, he hissed, "'Light the bomb!' I quickly grabbed the prop bomb, a black ball the size of a watermelon with the word "bomb" painted on it in white, and lit the firework fuse. I understood immediately what Stan was doing, he was cutting straight to the end of the routine, closing off any further opportunities for Ed to extemporise. Ed saw this too, and opened his mouth to protest, but the next thing he knew he had the bomb in his hands, and the -the pass-the-parcel climax to the sketch was underway. Our far-from-generic cop had planned something new here as well, though, and instead of the bomb passing between the four of us on stage, as usual, Ed threw it off into the wings.' It came back then from a stagehand who had been given more notice than we, Ed's colleagues, had been given, and Ed proceeded to play out the length of the routine with the bomb passing on and off stage, and Stan, Wren, and myself reduced to baffled spectators. The off stage explosion occurred, but instead of running off stage with the bomb and quickly blacking himself up with soot before coming back on as the visual punchline, Ed remained on stage, slapped his hands to his face in shock, and shouted out, Fatty! and then ran off. There was a moment or two then, when Stan, Wren and I simply stood on stage, not knowing what to do next, robbed of our punchline, cheated of the big laugh that brought down the curtain on the piece. We gaped at one another. Then Stan simply turned on his heel and walked off, not even bothering to do Chaplin's trademark walk. Wren followed, and I grabbed the burglar's tool bag and shambled off in their wake, to the sound of my own footsteps. A little applause broke out then, but nothing like what we deserved for our earlier efforts. With Wren trotting anxiously behind, Stan and I raced down to the dressing room to confront Hurley, only to find that he was furiously waiting to tear a strip off us. "'What was that?' Ed shouted as soon as we came into the room. "'You just skipped straight to the end. I was just getting going.' "'What?' I shouted back. "'What the hell were you doing?' "'I was just adding a few touches, exactly the same as the rest of you.' "'A few touches!' Stan yelled, as angry as I'd ever seen him. "'You went into a whole new scene that none of us knew anything about.' "'All you had to do was play along,' Ed protested. "'It would have been fine.' "'What were you even supposed to be?' I said. "'I thought that was obvious. I was the leader of the Keystone Cops. "'Hence the big K you painted on your uniform.' "'Exactly. Just as the real Keystone Cops never ever do, you mean.' It's an embellishment, that's all. Perfectly understandable. Perfectly rubbish, Stan snarled. And why, in the name of all that's holy, did you make out that there were other cops surrounding the house? I said. The leader of the Keystone Cops doesn't go out on his own. That's why. There are lots of things the leader of the Keystone Cops doesn't do. He doesn't talk, for a start. He certainly doesn't conduct lengthy investigations simply to establish who the characters in the scene are. All right, Stan said. Let's all calm down a bit, shall we? Don't you see, Ed that referring to other cops sets up an expectation of a particular kind, that these other cops are going to appear, as they do in the flickers, and chase around the place. And that's not going to happen, so it's not helpful. Surely you see that, don't you? I think it works, Ed said stubbornly. Oh, Ed, his wife sighed, exasperated. And you see, don't you, that throwing the bomb off stage and having it blow up someone the audience haven't seen is not as funny as blowing up the policeman. "'I am sick to death of doing that soot-make-up quick change,' Ed said, folding his arms. "'Well, that's the joke, so,' I said. "'I don't know what you're all getting so worked up about,' Ed protested. "'I'm only trying to make the thing better.' "'For yourself,' I muttered. "'Well, what about him?' Ed said, pointing at me. "'Did he run all his changes past everyone? "'He didn't run anything past me, I can tell you that.' "'Arthur only put on a moustache,' Wren said. "'Yes, well, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that you're taking his part.' "'Ed said nastily, and Stan held up his hands for calm once more. "'Here is what we're going to do,' he said, "'and there was an edge to his tone that made Ed back down. "'We will rehearse the piece properly tomorrow morning. "'Any changes anyone wants to suggest will be discussed then, "'but I can tell you this. "'For the second show this evening, "'there will be no imaginary Keystone cops off stage. "'There will be no additional dialogue for the policeman, "'who will be a lone constable and not a damned police chief.' "'and the bomb will blow you up, Edgar, you and nobody else. "'If that is not acceptable, you can make alternate arrangements, "'and I shall do likewise. Have I made myself clear?' "'Perfectly,' I said, glaring at Hurley. "'Yes, thank you, Stan,' Wren said. "'Come on, Ed. Let's go and find a cup of tea somewhere.' "'Huh!' Ed grunted gracelessly, "'and giving both me and Stan a look that I imagined was supposed to wither us, "'he followed his wife outside.' ''Unbelievable,'' I said, sitting on a settee. ''Absolutely unbelievable.'' Stan sighed heavily. ''What on earth was he thinking, the chump?'' ''Well, you showed him who's boss anyway,'' I said. ''I've never seen you so masterful. It was like listening to the governor himself.'' (laughs) ''Do you think so?'' Stan laughed. ''Absolutely. I just wish Freddy had been here to see it.'' ''Yes, good old Freddy,'' Stan said. ''I wonder what he's up to. Hope he's all right.'' ''I'm sure,'' I said. And Tilly and little Wallace too, of course. Yes, I said, but a chill shadow smothered my smile, and it was zeppelin-shaped.
2: Planning for your next trip?